Welcome to Coffee, Grief, and Gratitude, a podcast by Coffee and Grief. I'm Annie Gudger, and this is Maria Gibson. We're a mom-daughter team who talk about grief. We started this podcast to learn more about grief, to be part of the conversation in normalizing grief. We're not looking for answers because there really aren't any. We're looking for conversation. On this episode, we're bringing you a recording of Coffee Talk. Coffee Talk is a monthly reading series we put on. That's the first Thursday of every month on Zoom. We would love if you joined us live in the future. The link is always on our Facebook page as a Facebook event at Coffee and Grief and on the Coffee and Grief community page. Um, So sit back and enjoy this episode, listening to five wonderful writers reading their grief words. Hi, welcome everybody to Coffee Talk 52. Um, I'm Maria Gibson here tonight. And I am Kate Carol DeGudis filling in for the inimitable Annie Gudger. So thank you, Kate, for coming on here and hosting with us tonight. My mom, who I usually do this with, is uh, Annie Gudger, and she is in Mexico. So her internet's a little bit spottier than mine. So Kate offered to jump in, which we appreciate a lot. Uh, We're just so honored that you're here tonight for this Coffee Talk 52. And we just are so happy that you showed up. So thank you so much. And maybe in the chat, you can put in where you're Zooming in from and how many coffee talks you've been to, except Ann Richardson doesn't need to do that because she's been to all of them, but two. Um, As Maria said, this is the 52nd coffee talk. Annie and Maria have hosted 260 readers since March, 2020. They've had readers and listeners from all time zones in the States, from New Zealand, UK, Vietnam, and Mexico, which is part of why we all love Zoom. Annie and Maria created Coffee and Grief because they believe in public grief. Everybody grieves in small circles and large, in collective grief that touches touches us all. And they and me, we want to give voice to public grief, not just the hard parts, but the transformational parts too. This community has created a space to talk about things we don't normally make time to talk about. So since we started in March of 2020, we've heard grief stories about death of parents, siblings, friends, and pets. We've heard stories about dementia, loss of youth, loss of jobs, infertility, the pandemic, politics, society, loss of health, and loss of self. We've witnessed how humans can connect to each other through grief and through stories. Grief is one of life's certainties, the great equalizer through so many aspects of life. We're very honored that you showed up here tonight, and I always love when people's like first times, because that in the chat, that just means we're spreading some more too. Uh, So obviously we're on Zoom, so you'll be on mute until the very end. At the end, we'll unmute you. If you want to say something, then you can. Or if you want to type something in the chat, you're welcome to use the chat throughout the night. Uh, When readers are done, you can clap in your screen. You could clap. You could clap. You could do the little reaction clappy thing. Um, Yeah. We ask that you keep your camera on if you're engaged. We'd love to see your face. But if you're doing something else right now and just listening, then you could turn your camera off. 
So my biggest grief was not that my parents died. My grief stemmed from a fall my mother took while she was in my care. And the time my dying father required help and I felt too much resentment to assist him kindly. Ultimately, I forgave myself and learned that carrying resentment never soothes, soothes the person who is hurt or solves the relationship problem. I learned how to be kind to myself and practice empathy for others. I learned how to not take health and healing for granted. And I learned that we're all just walking each other home. I wrote my way through grief, just like Annie did. And what started as a 30-day blog experiment is a book, The Authenticity Experiment, Lessons from the Best and Worst Year of My Life. But I would be remiss if I did not tell you that Annie's book, The Fifth Chamber, just came out a month ago. And you can get it at local bookstores like in Portland, Oregon, like Annie Bloom's and Broadway Books. You can order it from IndieBound. You can order it from Amazon. Well, thank you, Kate, for sharing that. Um, for me, well, my mom usually talks about her grief first. So she was widowed uh, with when she was pregnant with my older brother. Uh, and that drastically changed her life. And that's what her book is about, so the event in her book. And then she remarried my dad and had me. And so I was very much raised in a home where grief was very normalized. It was something we talked about a lot. And it's something that I've realized as I've grown up was not talked about very much in the public space. So that's one of the reasons we wanted to do this. Uh, the past few years, I've lost multiple people in my life including several grandparents and a few horses and cats. I feel many deaths in my life have been major benchmarks in how I view the world. And one of the things I've realized throughout doing this coffee and grief work is that when we don't share our griefs, they become secrets and tear people up. But in sharing them, we can connect with each other on a very deep level. Uh, we started the coffee and grief community on Facebook. And if you're not in it, feel free to go join if you do Facebook. We ask that people share any creative work they have around grief that they want to share. So if you have any songs, stories, photography, writing, we'd love to see it posted there, any of your grief interpretations. We just ask that you promote yourself, just not any services you have. So if you have uh, links to published pieces or books, your website, Instagram, we'd love to see that on there. We offer these coffee talks the first Thursday of every month. So our next one will be December 7th at 7 p.m. on Zoom on a different Zoom link. It'll be on Facebook, the Zoom link. So we hope that you'll interact on that Facebook page. It's the Coffee and Grief community. We also started a podcast, not that recently now, 27 episodes ago. So it's called, yeah, it's pretty cool. We've, I've learned a lot on it. It's called Coffee, Grief, and Gratitude. You could listen to it anywhere you get your podcast. And we've had some fabulous conversations with people, including Kate here. So uh, go have a listen if you want. Tonight's format will have five readers reading about grief at the end of their reading. Feel free to clap, use sign language, snap, we don't know what people are reading tonight. We don't ask for pages ahead of time. So you could hear some hard things. 
What we know is the right readers are here with the right words. We won't take a break as a group, so feel free to do so on your own. Readings are typically under an hour, and we plan to keep close to that. We'll unmute you at the end so that you can show the readers some love. I love to be read too. I hope you do too. So grab your coffee and let's talk. And I have the pleasure of introducing the first reader, um, who I'm pretty sure knows I'm going to go slightly off script. For 10 years, Laura Julier was editor of Force Genre, a journal of literary nonfiction. As the director of the writing program at Michigan State University, she taught courses in environmental and place-based creative nonfiction and editing and publishing. Her lyric memoir, Off Isaac Walton Road, is in circulation with publishers right now. And that's really the reason that I ever fell in love with Laura Julia was I got to read an advanced copy of that book. It's so amazing. I can't wait for it to come out and for all of you to read it. Her essays have been published in several journals and anthologies, and her latest will be published in the spring in the gorgeous and amazing journal of nonfiction called Under the Gum Tree, which has the tagline, Stories Told Without Shame. Laura is currently on staff at Mercy Hospital in Iowa City as a hospital chaplain. Please welcome Laura Julia. Thank you. <clears throat> um, so the piece I'm reading <clears throat> is from the book that Kate mentioned, and it is titled The Open Heart. I am sitting in a hospital in a small town. I come here every day and I walk the halls. I read the day's census to learn who's newly admitted. I check in with the charge nurse and sit in on rounds to find out what's changed overnight. I walk the halls, pause, take a deep breath, and enter a room. A friend who has no religious or spiritual inclinations asked me why I was beginning to work as a hospital chaplain. What exactly is it, she wondered, that a chaplain does? I walk the halls, enter a room. I turn a page, enter a story. On some days I enter the room and the ICU nurse immediately says, oh yes, please sit with her. Or yes, please, they need to talk with you. On some days there is a daughter or a husband or neighbor waiting outside the room who sees me, sees my badge, takes my hand and asks, <clears throat> how am I going to live with this? Most days I sit and listen to stories, stories about 45 years spent on one farm in one house that is now boundaried with do not enter tape marked uninhabitable by county agents. The story from a woman who broke a leg running across the fields to direct the ambulance, trying to find the tree where her son-in-law had hung himself and her daughter who found him was screaming into the fading light. The story that unfolded from a man who kept rejecting all efforts to treat 
what had brought him to the hospital, beside himself with worry about his wife with dementia, who was home alone on their farm, miles from anywhere, with no friends left, no children who were still speaking to them, no one else to get the crops in or split the wood that would sustain them through the winter. Hospitals are filled with stories, in part because when you're a patient in a hospital, almost always it's because something has interrupted the narrative line of the story you thought you were living. Some rupture, some new unexpected plot twist. My job in the hospital is to listen to people's stories, to listen as they struggle to figure out how the story changes or to think out loud with them about how to weave the new event or new piece of information alongside the threads that have been guiding them up to that point. How to revise that story, especially in the face of loss. Loss of life, of relationship, of innocence and childhood, of identity and possibility. Loss requires us, if we are paying attention, to revise our story to make a new shape, a new sense as we try to come to terms. Walking in and out of rooms in a hospital every day, it's hard to step out of one story and into another, to receive each one as unique and distinct, which is how it is for the person living it, telling it, struggling with the new plot twist. It takes more than a deep breath before entering each room one after another. I walk the halls and enter rooms and listen, and some days by mid-afternoon I'm full up, so dazzled and weighted and reeling from the stories that I can't manage another. Each day on the long drive home, down two-lane county and state roads, lined with crops and woodlands, sandhill cranes in the fields, hens picking at the gravel in the roadside ditches, and turkey vultures circling high over roadkill. Images and people from these stories rise up out of order, mixing and fading. I am the one that the doctors or police officers or nurses call for, then move out of the way, relieved there's someone designated to take up the work of listening, of bearing witness to deep wells of unendurable and conflicted loss. In the emergency room of a large hospital, I stand beside the woman bent over the body of her mother, a Serbian immigrant, sobbing and keening for over an hour. I am the one to contact the imam and the only funeral home in town that can give her mother the care she doesn't know to ask for. She barely knows I'm there and doesn't acknowledge me, but I am there and she is not alone. I am there when the girlfriend arrives, takes one lo look at her beloved and screams over and over what's wrong with him. I am the one to say his heart stopped while she was driving here, to say he's dead, to follow her out of the room, to understand her wide-eyed fear of his body. And I am the one who returns to lay hands on the man, once again a witness for someone I did not know. But I know, and I understand what the landscape of loss is like, what is required. And what is required is to be present, 
to bear witness, to look it squarely in the face, acknowledging the depth of grief, the shock, the panic and fear that it might be real about what might come next. To catch the chaos of thought and emotion that comes in the face of the unexpected, though even when you know the loss is coming, even when the brain knows, the heart is always unprepared. Like a midwife, to be present to what a person will not remember, to catch it and carry it and remember it into something they can carry on into the next day, the next page, the next chapter. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. Our next reader tonight is Connie Cochran. Connie is cycling towards 80 on her new e-bike. She and her husband pursue trails near campgrounds throughout the Sierra Nevada and Pacific Coast, towing their electric bicycles, and Lucy, the small barking dog, in an RV. Rider, retired librarian, ex-lavender farmer, and doting grandmother, Connie has published short stories and family histories, including The Red and the Blonde, My Father's Family, and Gumption, A Grandmother's Story, and most recently, her first novel, Illusions I Recall, Eulogy for a Flower Child. Uh, let us welcome Connie. Oh, there you are. Oh, yeah, here, sorry. Thank you. Now I'm going to exit this screen so I can find my manuscript. <laughs> Oops. Okay. Sorry. Not real. There I am. This is called Writing on Hope, a true story. It was a July 3rd that my older brother Johnny phoned to announce the opening of the roller coaster I never wanted to ride. Hey, sis, Johnny's voice sounded tentative. They found a tumor the size of a golf ball on Chris's brain. Remember when he had that mole removed from under his arm? Our family's bodies are textured with moles and freckles and benign cysts. We've all had something removed. I did recall visiting my younger brother in hospital once because they'd taken some lymph nodes too as a precaution. He'd laughed and joked about his vacation. That was a dozen years back and I'd not given it another thought. Melanoma had been silently invading his magnificent body ever since. With the bulk of a grizzly and a teddy bear face, Chris loved life. He brought joy, whether running his concrete business, coaching his daughter's softball team, or reading Harry Potter to his son. Once a month, we'd each drive an hour on Sunday morning to meet at a halfway point. Over private breakfast in a public place, Chris would listen to his big sister pour out her midlife neuroses and then make me laugh. You may be dramatic, but never boring, he'd reassure me with his crease face grin, wiping an empathetic tear from his own eye. Attired in mom's frilliest apron, mashing the potatoes, the family baby was a favorite at holiday dinners. He's scheduled for surgery tomorrow, said Johnny, through the hard plastic at my ear. Would you drive over and tell mom? Neither of my brothers wanted to tell her on the phone. 
They didn't want her to be alone when she got the news. They didn't know how she'd take it. They knew I would know how to tell our widowed mother. How would I know? Queen of undue optimism, mom wondered if it was really necessary for us to go all the way to LA until we learned more. She didn't want to impose on her neighbors to feed her cats and water her plants. We need to go, mom, I said, none too gently. Surgeons don't operate on holidays unless it's urgent. When we arrived at the hospital, they had already shaved Chris's head. He was sitting in his hospital bed in his hospital gown, worried more for mom than himself. His eyes were dim, his smile small, and his voice weak when he asked, like my new look? Johnny and I camped out in the waiting room on each side of mom. She ate her fingernails while we drank coffee from the vending machine, ignoring the muted TV scenes of 4th of July picnics. Finally, my sister-in-law appeared in the doorway. The margins were clean, she said. They got the whole thing. They're going to schedule some radiation of the area to be safe. I had a feeling he was going to be okay, smiled mom. I drove her home to her cats and plants and neighbor friends. Hope sprang and life coasted into a deceptive calm. A few weeks later, Chris called. Hi, Con. I'm pretty down and bitter, he said. His voice was higher pitched than usual, a little strangled. They're saying maybe five years. I can't believe the best I can expect is to see Stephanie graduate from college or Kyle start high school. I couldn't prevent a sob from escaping into the phone. Life lurched forward and did not feel safe. In the fall, Chris's hopes reached a new high. He was training to walk the John Muir Trail. He'd hired a personal coach, booked a reservation for the following summer, bought the best hiking gear. The node they thought had been on his adrenal gland had disappeared. I wondered where it had gone. But in early spring, Chris began losing energy. They didn't know why. They couldn't find anything. Whoever they were kept changing from one hospital and one specialist to another. In late September, one week shy of Chris's 48th birthday, they recommended exploratory surgery for the pain in his abdomen. By the time I arrived with mom to give Chris our support, they had informed him surgery was not going to help. His entire digestive system was malignant. The previously vanished node had metastasized to all of his vital organs. Gerald hoped there might still be time, months, to take the kids to Alaska or the Grand Canyon if Chris could respond to chemo. The next day, Gerald went to the hospital to get Chris and didn't return until late that night, alone. He needs you to respect his decision, she said. He's suspending further treatment. Chris needs to gain some peace and dignity. In other words, he needed for us not to burden him with our fears, our tears, or more hope. None of us, especially Chris, had had time to absorb the ricochet of reversals these past months, let alone the shock of this one. Gerald set up Chris on a hospital bed in the living room. It was dark because light burned his eyes, silent because sounds made his head hurt. No drama, sis, please, he whispered. I wasn't able to do more than nod and squeeze his hand. Chris wanted to kiss his son goodbye on the first day of middle school, and I left to get my husband. Sarah McLaughlin was singing Angel on the car radio when my cell phone rang. He's gone, said Gerald. He fell back to sleep before Kyle made it down the stairs. <clears throat> 
I sat in my car, wept angry tears for every last hope my brother had been denied. Full life, five years, months, five minutes. Chris finally made it to the John Muir Trail in the arms of his closest friends and family, who cast his unauthorized ashes onto a stretch in Yosemite National Park. My hope is that he found some comfort there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Connie. That was lovely. Next, I get to introduce my friend, Diane Greenwood. About the Carlton Sisters, Diane Greenwood's debut novel was published by She Writes Press in the spring of 2023. Though Diane Greenwood started in the Dakotas, Vermilion, South Dakota, she has been a West Coaster since adolescence. She studied both writing and counseling psychology in San Francisco. An early focus on poetry led her to fiction. She's published personal essays in The Big Smoke, an online magazine. She writes and works as a therapist in Portland, Oregon. You can find her on the interwebs and all this information will be posted on the Coffee and Grease Facebook page, on Facebook, on Instagram, and on X, formerly known as Twitter. Please welcome Diane Greenwood. Thank you all. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, this is going to be a little change of pace. I'm actually going to read from my novel about the Carlton sisters. And this is about halfway through the novel. It is that I have two sisters. The two older sisters are at a coffee shop and they're having a heart-to-heart -heart conversation like they've never had before. It doesn't start that way. So this is from the point of view of Lorraine, the eldest sister. Her sister, Julie, who she's talking to, is a former Las Vegas showgirl who was aged out of her work. And she's now back in this little town of River's End in the Central Valley of California. Julie's white legs stretched out bare under her black skirt on the spare seat in front of her. She'd pulled her skirt past her knees and mid-thigh, her legs spread apart in the heat, never mind the folks gawking when they walked by the downtown coffee carousel on K Street. This was our first casual outing away from Mama and the mobile home, and as always, Julie flaunted herself. Sometimes she embarrassed me so much, there was nothing to do but what I was doing. Gaze across the street at the new county offices, the four-story stucco show, showing orange in the afternoon sun. I just hoped no one I knew saw us there. So tell me about this Pastor Harmon you're seeing, Julie said. I could feel my blush reach into my forehead within the first half second. How dare you, I said. He's my pastor who happens to be married and a very nice man. He's helped me more than you could possibly understand. 
I sat straight in my chair while my feet searched for my sandals. This wasn't something I wanted to talk about with her, now or ever. I gazed toward the other side of K Street, where the hyacinths had started to wilt in this awful heat. Julie leaned forward until I couldn't ignore her. The whisper in her voice matched what I'd call a leer and made it seem like we were accomplices. Don't tell me that's all. I saw you with him at the supermarket. Do you think I just fell off a tomato truck? I could feel the bricks and mortar fall into place. Those eyes that wanted to see through me. Not that she'd ever let me see inside of her. No, she'd dig around until she had one up on me. I'm surprised you're interested, was all I said. This celibacy thing of yours is crazy, Lorraine. Life is short and thin, it's gone. Speak for yourself and your own so-called celibacy, I said. If she knew, really knew, that Pastor Harmon was the perfect man for me, she'd be scheming and suggesting ways I could steal him away from Pamela. You never have to worry about me being celibate, she said, a smile that showed the deeply curved lines around her mouth. I haven't spent half my life waiting for some man to show up. That would be my buck. And Julie, too. Two kinds of people in the world, the stayers and the leavers. We might as well be two different species. Why do the ones who leave always think they're the winners, I asked. My breath escaped in a big sigh, though our table was quiet again. Julie tipped back her drink until the remaining ice chips jammed against the plastic lid. She set the cup back down. Somebody has to leave, she said. Serious and far away, something I hadn't seen before. With men, it's like that. It's good while it's good, and then it isn't. She laughed, but it wasn't her usual laugh that came up out of her belly and caught me in its wake. It was more like the laugh after you've cried so much, you're all dried up and you can't cry anymore. Shadows hung on the county offices across the street and the day looked different than it had before. For just a minute, Julie had let me see what I call the lonely place. No one can go there with you, especially when it gets so bad you feel you could break apart or yes, even step in front of a train. The ache that keeps calling you from that time you thought you'd always be across from him, the one you loved at a table or just riding in the car. First their profile, then their eyes focused out the window like they didn't even know you were there. Or you were getting out of their car and you looked back one last time. They'd said something to you. It didn't matter what. And even while they talked, the sadness set in. Because when they were there, they weren't there. And whatever you had between you was over. All you had left was that invisible sadness 
that connected to their face and went right into the place in your chest that got tripped whenever you remembered them. It happened to me, and I could see it happen to her. But unlike her, once was enough. Did it make the leaving easier to know you'd done it yourself? It didn't look that way, only that you wanted to believe you'd been harmless. That was the wage of sin right there. I'm sorry, I said. I said it really soft, not to disturb what seemed broken in her. Life did that to us, gave us pieces that would never fit back together, no matter how much you angled them this way or that. The whole mosaic or mirror or picture you might have had was wrecked for good. Thank you. Thank you. Our next reader tonight is Eileen Verbach Collins. Eileen is a Baltimore native. She writes true stories she wishes were fiction and fairy tales she wishes were true. She is the author of the award-winning essay collection, Love in the Archives, a patchwork of true stories about suicide loss. Eileen lives in North Carolina with her husband, Hugh, and Sugar, possibly the oldest lab on the planet. Let us welcome Eileen. Hi, glad to be here. I've, what great stories I've heard so far. So this is a, a short piece, it's not in my collection. Born with a head full of spiky light brown hair and some early photos in a certain light, you resembled a wide-eyed orangutan baby with that russet tuft. I couldn't believe when the pediatrician came to check you out, he didn't say you were the most perfect baby he'd ever seen. Your hair grew lighter and longer Sometimes I'd put it into two braids like those my mother wrestled my own hair into before school most days. I taught you to braid three strands of your doll's hair, each strand a sister wanting to be in the middle to keep warm. Now it's my turn, each would cry until they were intertwined, the braid complete. For your first day of kindergarten, I learned to make a French braid. The braids got more intricate and you learned how to make them. We braided Hala, your stunning six braid loaves were always a hit. When we visited Helen in St. Thomas, a woman on the beach braided your hair into cornrows. Your scalp burned in the part, but you didn't want to cover art with a hat. The beads clacked when you ran. You learned Grape Kool-Aid makes a good hair dye, then graduated to Manic Panic, blue and green. The cerulean faded to a stonewashed denim, the vibrant forest green to a pale sea foam. When you shaved your head, you once let me rub the sweet, soft buzz of it. I wanted to hear you purr to know you were happy. 
Native Americans find power and culture in their locks. I wish you'd kept your tangled dreadlocks, bulky strands with Elmer's glue. I can't believe you let her do that, they said. I ignored them, thinking there were worse things you could have been doing. You cut the dreadlocks, then shaved your head. Just half of it, though. When it grew back, you wanted your hair to be white. You never gave a reason. That was the costliest of all, the stripping and the chemicals. But you'd work to earn the money. And it did look lovely until the roots started growing out. Too expensive to maintain. And what about the effect of all those chemicals on your young body? But it didn't matter, did it? If not for that photograph your grandmother took, I wouldn't remember what your hair looked like the day you died. You hadn't let me take your picture much those last few years. I should have snapped a few anyway. At the end, your hair was short and light brown, natural. I have a single lock, still blonde, from when you were maybe five years old. We could clone her, your brother once said. For only $3,000, I could have had a diamond made from a half cup of your hair. But who thinks of such things? Who measures hair in cupfuls? Who needs a diamond? Instead, that lock of your hair is in a Ziploc sandwich bag in a plastic bin with your glasses, baby teeth, report cards, the guest log from your funeral. It's a myth, that thing about hair, how hair continues to grow after you're dead. There's no posthumous activity from those follicles. Your hair stopped growing when your heart stopped beating, your final visit to a salon of your own making. My fingers remember the braiding. This sister in the middle, that one, now this one, just waiting to stay warm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eileen. Our final reader of the evening is Pema Rocker. Pema is an author, story coach, and strategist. She has created, curated, and edited magazines for the LGBTQ plus community and spiritual communities, formed story circles to deepen group experiences and connect teams for greater collaboration. And she has been a corporate content strategist and ghostwriter for thought leaders. She helps creators find their way through launch transitions and creative blocks in the stories they tend. From business media to teaching curricula to songwriting to memoir. Pema lives in Portland, Oregon and works with folks across the globe. Please welcome Pema Rocker. So I want to tell you about a thing that happened today. Um, this morning I was heavy over what I would read tonight. Like how would I cut my chapters into six minutes? That makes sense. And then on a walk with my girlfriend, I ended up crying in her arms and 
finally realized that it was grief and not stress that I was feeling. And at the place where we stopped, I opened my eyes from all those tears and realized we were standing in front of the most beautiful garden and these patterned trees and this, these big stones that were wet with the rain. And in the center of the garden were uh, was a statue of two herons. And I just smiled and cried again because the herons are the bird that show up um, so many times over the years now whenever I need a nudge to share my memories of those I've lost with the people I love. So um, it's also Dia de los Muertos. It seems a really fitting night to be creating this living altar that we've heard in stories tonight. So thank you, Annie and Maria and Kate and all of you storytellers for this incredible evening um, of tears and love. So my book is a memory collage. It's told in senses and stories over 20 years. It's called Ash and Spirit, Freeing Grief and Finding Hope in 31 Days of Memories, Mediumship, and Collective Healing. And so here are some glimmers from my altar or my book. Day one, 2001 and two, uh, 1986. On September 11th, 2001, my proximity to the World Trade Center attacks in New York City opened personal traumas I had neatly closed up and long since left behind. Cornered by sirens and smoke and chaos, in class on my second morning of grad school, I was counting, estimating, calculating the number of people whose doors would open to a coroner tonight, carrying news that their loved one is dead. How many times had I remembered the coroner who came to our house 15 years before? Her messy blonde curls, the run in her ivory colored stockings, mute cop by her side, and the view into the living room, my tall dad in my mom's teal robe, grabbed in haste on the way out of bed, hearing that his son was gone, my brother. It was two days after his 17th birthday. It was the night before my 16th. Day 21, 2001, here now. When class resumes a week later, we question the substance of an art degree in the wake of our city's event. What are we doing here? Our teacher implores us to understand that the voices of artists are the voices our culture needs most as it finds its way through this breakdown. That imagination is not pretense and that creativity is deepest truth possessed. One day, our teacher tells 40 of us sitting on the floor in a circle facing outward to each put on theater's smallest mask, the clown nose. We learn the proper ritual for putting on a mask. You let it hover in front of your face, breathing into the mask as you set it to rest. It comes to life and from you comes its character. It's a possession. In a crowd of people in masks, you forget there are people you know underneath them. They screech and howl and strut, they laugh and stutter, and barely can you notice the person delivering the character. On clown day, the teacher counts to three and has us all turn around to face into the circle. We are quiet. There is 
Pasha and Rina and Cal in red clown noses, Nick and Maria, a room full of people sitting in a circle on the floor, sunlight settling into late afternoon corners. No one speaks. I start to giggle. I mean, a room full of people in silence with straight faces and clown noses. Everyone's clown face swings to look at me and I in mine am laughing. I can't stop laughing. My voice gets high, people smile, tears come to my eyes, I double over. When I sit up, everyone is still looking at me and I laugh harder, double over again. And as I'm bent, a sob catches in my throat. I press it back, confused. Quieted, I take a breath, look up, see the red noses, all their faces quietly watching me and lose it into guffaws again. Again, I double over. Again, I'm possessed by pain. Again, I let the fear of maniacal sobbing quell my outburst. Mm -hmm. When it's over, I feel alone. The swell in my throat, my chest feels like I'm going to crack and I wish I could let myself break in the moment, be taken by clowns. Day nine, 2005, reset. A few years after the 9-11 attacks, I lived in LA. I was tired. My learned resources were failing me. My scrappiness was wearing thin. I thought this sense of loss and isolation and feeling out of control of my life was the beginning of the way it would be for the rest of time. I thought I was losing my mind. I moved to Central California where I had close friends and hit reset. But I was starting ground floor. First take care of home, then food, then work, then future, one thing at a time. I didn't know this wilted version of myself, but I continued. On the day I sat, oh, one day, I sat at my receptionist's desk, looking out on the parking lot, questioning what I was doing, but knowing it would get me to the next thing and the next. It was like breathing each day was first in, now out, doesn't matter if you don't understand how you got here, breathe in. I set down the phone and out the window saw a river of butterflies floating by, a current of monarch butterflies streaming, gushing through the parking lot, thousands upon thousands of butterflies, black and orange and fragile enough to look lighter than wind, but clearly muscling through it midway on their 2,500 mile journey from Mexico to Northern California. I watched the migration till it dwindled about 20 minutes after it began. It felt like a cleansing and a prayer down at the river. I think that's what they call a baptism. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thank you all so much for being here with us tonight. It was a lovely night. Uh, if you want to find out any more about our readers, they are on our Facebook group. I'm sure they'd love to hear from you if you want to connect with them. And their like websites and books should be under their information. Uh, yeah. Uh, if you want to be a reader with us, please let us know. Reach out on Facebook at Coffee and Grief, or our email is coffeeandgrief at gmail.com. Uh, we'll have another coffee talk in December. 
at 7 p.m. on December 7th. Uh, my mom's book is also out, The Fifth Chamber. Look it up. Um, it's on our Facebook page. She'll be doing a reading and book signing in Santa Monica, California at Ziggy's Books on November 6th. That's soon. Yeah, that is in a few days. Um, and then in Seattle at the Nook and Cranny on November 29th at 6.30. So come back, invite your friends, take care of yourself, be good to your hearts, drink a lot of water, do something kind for yourself. And if you have the bandwidth, do something kind for another person. We're going to unmute you all now. If you'd like to give the readers some love, we thank you for coming. And I thank Annie and Maria for letting me help out and do this. Well, good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Thank, you. thank you for coming.